0: This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast
1: with Andrew McKay-Smith. G'day, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me. This episode here is a repost of a chat that occurred back in June 2019 with the great Lee Harrison of Monstrosity and Terrorizer. Now, the catalyst for the conversation was twofold. Terrorizer had released an album in 2018 titled Caustic Attack, and Monstrosity had just released a masterpiece two of them, in the same year, 2018, The Passage of Existence. So I wanted to talk about those two albums, but I wanted to go far deeper with Lee Harrison because he's one of my favorite musicians of all time. And he's got such a, a long and illustrious resume that I don't feel gets enough attention from mainstream metal types, or really any metal types, let's face it. But he's one of the Floridian death metal originals, and you'll hear all about why In the conversation. So let's get to it. Here he is, Lee Harrison. Hey mate, Andy McKay Smith calling for a chat. How are you going? How's it going, brother? Yeah, really good, man. Really good. I really appreciate you making time for this. Uh, sorry for uh, haranguing you or bugging you <laughs> a little bit about this one here. But look, let me tell you, I've been looking so forward to the potential or the possibility of us being able to have a conversation because I must say, mate, from the outset, you're, you're probably uh, one of my favorite musicians of all time.
0: Awesome, dude. Thank you, man.
1: Well, I've been, look, I, I tell you when it started, back in the day when I picked up Millennium. I was thinking, who the hell can drum like that? Because there's the only other person that can drum like that is uh, Pete from Morbid Angel, Peter Sandoval. And lo and behold, in 2018 and 19, you're in a band with him. <laughs> but you're on guitar. Yeah. And that was, mate, I can't... <laughs> and you jumped across the guitar. I mean, who? Who? I mean, apart from people within your inner circle and people who are really familiar with you, who would have thought, mate? But you're, you are a, an extraordinarily gifted musician, I must say. Thank you bro
0: you know. Yeah, yeah you know it didn't just happen i put a lot of work to get that way you know so
1: yeah i mean it's uh the other thing a lot of people uh they had, they have designs on these sorts of things but in, in the same year you've appeared on certainly e- easily uh one of my favorite death metal albums of the year with uh, monstrosity but then you go on uh, you know, on drums and then in with terrorizer you're on guitar playing a very i mean it's it's a very tight album that one there the the terrorizer album there from last year mate so mate I, i know i understand that with the monstrosity thing things take time i think i was reading somewhere that you started uh the recording process in 2011 uh and it went right the way through to last year or the year before or thereabouts there mate but but um how do, you, how do you make time for these things? And, and and I'm alluding to there, the quality of everything that you do. Okay, so you make time for these things insofar as you say, okay, I'm going to do these things, but then they're all of extremely high quality, mate. So I'm assuming you've got a day job as well. So how do you fit everything in?
0: Um, Actually, uh, since 2001, I've been able to do music only. Um, I was working in a bakery in the 90s, and I never, you know, had to tour. I never had to turn down a tour necessarily or anything because of my job. I, I was always lucky with that. But it just got to a point around 2001 where I was touring a lot more, and I just uh, ended up, you know, kind of letting those guys know, you know, that I wasn't going to be around as much. And it just worked out where I didn't have to go back to having a regular job. Hmm. Uh, and then uh, I did. Uh, I played music with. Uh, you know, some cover band stuff and, you know, so it's not all like all right, okay, original right. music while well, I'm out touring, you know, it's local work too. And uh, basically since about 2004, I've been playing every weekend since then, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. that gives me my week, the, the, the time during the week to kind of like, you know, put towards music, like, you know, writing, you know, and doing the original projects. Yeah. So I like that a lot better than having a real day job, per se, you yeah. yeah. But, uh, and, you know, it's, it's still playing music, so it's it's keeping with, you know, kind of my original plan, you know, to, to do music full time.
1: Well, it's so great to hear that a musician of, of your uh, capability plays covers, because I do as well, actually. I, I certainly don't play it every weekend. I stopped playing it every weekend because I was getting burnt out. So when you say you're playing covers, are you on the rock cover scene there or the tribute band scene over there?
0: Uh, it's whatever hires me, pretty much. I've been uh, with this one guy, uh, Joe, that, uh, pretty much most of the time. But I've done, you know, country work. I've done different kinds of, uh, you know, playing bass, playing guitar, playing drums, you know. So it's not just been one thing either. Uh, but kind of whoever hires me, you know, and if it's something that you know that, that makes sense, you know, yeah, I don't mind doing it. Mm. Plus I've done some session work for, uh, did some session work for a Doom guy doing a Doom project. Um, And I work with some some other kind of singer, uh, like kind of more power metal singers. Um, Got a couple projects going like that where it's kind of, you know, like I'm in the background really, but, you know, it's more or less being their backup band, if you will, Mm kind of playing everything cause I do my own project, the rock project, Little boys which is my solo rock project where I do it all, you know, and, and that's more focused on my vocals for me personally. Like that's the, you know, kind of the thing with that, but, mm-hmm. uh, it's just with that thing, it's one of those things where I just don't have a budget to do a real album and I'm just kind of holding off until I can get something going with that. Cause I want to, you know, I got some good songs written. I got like 60 songs probably. And, uh, they're just kind of waiting in the wings until I can get a proper budget, and then I'm going to pick my ten best and just go in and and record them. You know, I got demos of them, but I want to get them. You know, I want to kind of step it up as usual. You know, mm. um, that's my thing. You know, to me, production's a big part of it.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's so, that, yeah. that's very that's heartening to hear. That certainly, as far as I'm concerned, one of the greatest death metal musicians of all time is making ends meet by playing all sorts of other genres because I, I, I'm not a death metal musician. I, I've actually never played death metal. I've got to put it on my hand and say that, apart from my love from the jo- for the genre. But I, I, the covers that I play, disco, funk, a lot of Australian music, like Australian music from the 80s and 90s, this sort of stuff here. But it's just about performing, isn't it, really? It's just about being in front of people, and in your case, it's, it's, it's a job, really. And, uh, look, I, I'd love to do it. As a, as a job as well because I'm also a, I'm at university so for me I'm actually trying I mean one band I'm trying to get like a hard rock band where we play like Guns N' Roses and ACDC and Whitesnake and all that sort of stuff because I really see an opportunity there uh, to do that but I, wa- I want to get some younger musician around me and do it because you can sort of be around musos who are a bit jaded and don't put in the time and the effort to really put in a good show for people but I guess um, for, from your perspective man you're an all-rounder, okay, so guitar, bass, drums, vocals. When did this, when did you work out that you could do it all? Was it something that happened through high school or even earlier?
0: Well, it just goes to my overall story, you know, back when I uh, started playing, well, when I got first got into music, I was possessed by Kiss, you know, at like seven years old. And they were kind of, you know, that was like, you know, fantasy world, but like, at the same time, it was, you know, what you want to do as a kid. You know, you see jeans and spitting blood, and it's cool as hell. But anyway, long story, you know, I was, uh, I wanted to play guitar first, but I'm left handed. And my dad wouldn't let me play, he wouldn't, you know, let me turn the guitar over and play left handed. So he forced me to play right handed, which now I'm thankful for because I can play a guitar that's right handed. And, you know, everybody plays right handed, so it's much easier for me to, you know, to play a guitar that's sure. right handed. So that, uh, so I'm. But at the time, it was kind of discouraging because I couldn't immediately play. You know, in my head, I couldn't immediately do what I wanted to do. And uh, he came. My dad came at me with. Uh, he had a. He was a pilot, and he had a pilot buddy that owned these apartments in South Miami, and he had this. Uh, this guy that was a drummer at the University of Miami jazz he was in the jazz department or whatever and he was a drum drum instructor kind of on the side and he he was doing lessons out of his apartment and i would go there weekly you know i started with that it just kind of is something you know something to do really i wasn't necessarily totally into the drums but Mm -hmm. you know i wanted to play music it really you know it wasn't as it wasn't defined with guitar so like i just went ahead and tried the drums and then like the first lesson was okay, you know, but the second—I think it was the second lesson where he just, you know, kind of let me go off on the drums and like really just kind of whatever I wanted to play. And that's when I really, you know, drums clicked in for me. And uh, I took it more serious, and uh, we started with the book Stick Control and just doing the exercises out of there and doing mm-hmm. different. Uh, you know, he would do like 15 minutes on the pad and then 15 minutes on the drum set. Is kind of how our first lessons were just go with that more and more and then I had a local guy that I was jamming with uh, two actually two guys Brace Boone and Brian Hartcock and uh, they uh, we had a little band called Ozone and you know they would have their guitars laying around when we were you know not practicing or whatever you know so I would pick up the right handed guitar and play a little bit and as time got, you know went on I would get you know a little better then I think I even had an acoustic for you know not long after that, and so I would play, um, you know, I was playing right-handed guitar, and then just slowly and surely it got better. And around 13 I went out and I bought like a Kramer Striker and like a little amp, and that's when I started playing guitar a lot more. And then I was just kinda of doing these demos where like I would record the drums on <clears throat> a little tape recorder, mm-hmm. Put them in my stereo, play them loud, and then record. You know, on top of that, and then record those two. You know, it was like basically like cheap four track recording, but you know, it was it just worked. very primitive. I guess. And it was just I was that just would uh, they really were horrible tapes at the time, but it was just enough to keep me going. You know, and and um, then I did uh, I went I saved up for my first drum set working at a movie theater uh cool. three thirty five an hour. Yeah. Which is basically nothing. And mm-hmm. uh took me you know, it took me a year probably to save up. I finally got my kit and then uh when I was eighteen I packed up my van and moved to Miami and I was became friends with the Cynic guys. Nice. Yep. Which they were already they were already together. They were already they were like a thrash band back then. And I met the the original bassist for Monstrosity was in Cynic at the time. Uh, Mark Vander, he was playing bass. and I met him and we ended up rooming together later on. And um, But at the time we I was uh, with these guys from Homestead and we were trying to, um, this one guitar player guy, we were trying to, me and a singer we were trying to get this band going and it just it was just a struggle it never really happened so I kind of ended up becoming more of a roadie for Cynic at the time just because my thing will not happen and and theirs was you know so like me and Mark Van Herp we, we would drive around and pass out flyers for Cynic and do stuff like that you know and I would uh, you know help them just you know load drums and stuff like that too but uh, then later uh, Malevolent Creation moved to town uh, from Buffalo and they They had a drummer, but they weren't happy with him, this guy named Joe, Mm -hmm. and uh, so they were always, he was always telling me, oh get ready, get ready, you know, so uh, at some point I ended up moving to Fort Lauderdale, which is like an hour north in Miami, north of Miami, and uh, ended up uh, joining Malevolent for, uh, I don't know, nine months or so, Mm -hmm. and that, you know, that that was going good, but then it, at some point it did, you know it didn't work out, and I was back at home, kind of with you know not sure what I was going to do, and then at that point I was talking with atheist uh, Roger Patterson. Oh wow! Okay, had seen us or you know, he had he would gotten our demo and the Malevolent demo, and he really loved the Malevolent demo. And so I was talking to him, and they were talking about how their drummer was going back to college and all this stuff. So, I was talking with him a little bit, and then I was also doing my own. I had a project called Submission that I was kind of had started when I was in Malevolent, kind of on the side, where, you know, because I had a four track and uh, ended up doing some demos or whatever with that. And I ended up writing a bunch of songs. I wrote like, I don't know, nine or ten songs and recorded those in uh, 1990. And then a lot of those songs ended up becoming, you know, I ended up kind of like picking and choosing, and uh, some of those songs, you know, were on the Imperial Doom album, mm-hmm. like those some some of the main riffs, like "Burden of Evil." A lot of that stuff was on the Submission demo and Definitive Inquisition, like the chorus riff, and there was like some some middle section parts that were from my Submission demo. Yep. So that was I kind of always had that, and then you know I ended up doing Monstrosity, and really. I was still playing guitar and writing for Monstrosity, but I wouldn't—I didn't really have a plan to, like, play guitar out front. Yep. And then it was, I would say, 97, I started doing a bunch of covers, recording a bunch of covers, kind of solo thing. And I had to, met this singer guy that was kind of like a Dio, Dockin' kind nice. of voice. Yeah. Cross, you know, and he was a really good singer. And so I was like, okay, you know, we. Like, write some rock songs for that, but the guy ended up flaking out on me, and finally I just decided, you know, for better or worse, I'm just going to go ahead and sing, and it's, you know, it's, uh, you know, I don't have to depend on a singer, and, you know, it'll just be me, and for better or worse, if, you know, like, I don't know, I won't name any now, well, we can say like a Bob Dylan type, if that guy can sing, you know, Mm -hmm. or if like, you know, in my head, Neil Young, even though he's great, and, whatever but at the time I just I was thinking like if that guy can make it you know or whatever I know
1: what you're saying yeah
0: you know just yeah whatever you know uh but so kind of like that was my thinking on that so I just you know I've been doing that and I've had a couple lineups together we've done a couple shows They you know they've gone that great to be honest but uh uh, just because the the people didn't learn their parts we'll say yeah yeah um but, uh, you know, it's one of those things now where it's kind of like, well, I want to get the album done first and have, actually have something to promote. And so that's kind of how the guitar thing came about, you know, was just through always being around a guitar player and writing for Monstrosity and doing my own little rock projects and stuff.
1: Yeah, great. Okay. So there's the long, there's yeah. the long answer. No, it's a, <laughs> a wonderful answer. <laughs> there's so much detail in all of that. It's uh, where do I start? Okay, so you talked about Roger Patterson, atheist. Okay, so for those people who are listening who don't know, because of course sorry, I'll let you know if you're cool with everything, I'll release this as a podcast episode. Because made it's I, I was uh, searching online and I couldn't see any podcast episodes uh, that you were featured in. So uh, that answer there's awesome because it gives people so much. Uh, Critical informa- its a critical information summary, if you like, of Lee Harrison's career. And you've mentioned no. you mentioned so much in there. And one of the things, as I just mentioned, was uh, Roger Patterson from Atheist. Now, unfortunately, he's no longer with us anymore. But he, that that name there references the fact that you are a death metal original. You were one of the—you are one of the guys that was there really when in the embryonic stages. Uh, and uh, you know, Imperial Doom, great album. Uh, And then a couple of years later, I think probably the the greatest, and I consider it a tech death metal masterpiece, Millennium. Uh, It wasn't received that well, I don't think, at the time, but I think as years gone by, this is going to sound like a naff comparison, but Weezer, the band Weezer, when they bought out Pinkerton, uh, big Weezer fan I am, and uh, when they bought that out, people hated it and they didn't understand it. But of course, in the intervening years, it's been hailed as a classic and I feel the same thing has happened with Millennium. Okay, there. So you've that that well, album. Well,
0: actually, honestly, yeah.
1: well, actually, honestly, the the Cannibal
0: DVD kind of helped push Monstrous that that album. You know, kind of like it wasn't until then that you know that's when it really people Caught on. started yeah. to change their tune as far as that album. You know, I mean, I think people liked it too, but like for us when we played it live, you could just see it going over people's heads. You know, they just couldn't. It just wasn't a, an album where, like, they could bob their head to, you know. Well, it was ahead of its time.
1: It was, a, it, was, it was actually people... I remember commentators, like, I can't remember what magazines it was at the time, but they were making fairly disparaging comments, actually. They're saying, oh, this is just, you know, this is just technical death metal. You know, it's not 1991 anymore, this sort of thing. And I'm thinking nobody's produced an album like this. I mean, not even Legion by side sounds like this. This has got... You didn't, you didn't just write that album... Uh, Lee you you engineered that album (laughs) you know what I'm saying like there's a lot that's going on in that album there and I I listened to it I reckon that was one of my most um like the the one death metal album I probably listened to the most over a long period of time if that makes sense so I'd listen to that one when I was uh training gym I listened to that one in the car just trying to figure out all the different parts because there was so much going on but I think when you listen to bands now like Arch Spy and I've I've spoken to the drummer from Archspy, you know, the Canadian band, who are uh, probably, probably the leading light in tech death metal these days there. And I, I don't know why I didn't ask the question. We're talking about so many other things, but I reckon they've heard that album, mate, and they've gone, yep, this is this is what it is. This is what it sounds like. This is the music that we want to create too. So do, do you get a lot of that feedback from people when they, when they particularly, I'm, I'm talking about Millennium, but also in Dark Purity as well. Do you get a lot of that sort of feedback that it's been a very inspiring album for musicians?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's hard to say if it's, you know, like, uh, you know, yeah, you get people coming up, you know, but they I, they kind of say it anyway, you know what I mean? It's hard to tell, like, because people are nice, you know what I mean? They don't want to, yeah. you know, I don't know. <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't <know> think <laughs> it's saying. Yeah. It's hard to
0: judge, you know what I mean? Because, uh, but yeah, yeah, um, but for us as a band, like the first album, you know, the drums were real dominant, and the guitars were kind of buried in the mix, and then, uh, the way they were recorded, they were like triggered in a way that they were like it's real uh, one-dimensional. There's no uh, dynamics in the in the triggering. It was kind of the eight, I call it the 1989 triggering model, <laughs> and uh, just yep. because everything was real, you know, the steady. There's no like ghost notes or there's you know everything's one level as far as if it's triggered. If it's a triggered snare, it's one level. If it's a triggered kick, it's another level. You know what I mean? So it was real dominant with millennium. We kind of wanted, you know, obviously we needed, you know, that wasn't our goal was to kind of like bring it dial it back. And like, um, it just ended up being that the, you know, the kicks are natural and uh, you know, it's more of a natural drum sound. Mm-hmm. And within Dark Purity, we kind of we felt Millennium had kind of lost some of the power because of the you know because we've right. gone you know we were extreme one way on Imperial Doom and we kind of went extreme the other way on on Millennium. So like the idea within Dark Purity was kind of have the balance where it was still like the kicks are triggered, but it's not like you know it's not overly triggered where it's just all one dimension and just one sound. You know, there's a little bit of life to it and. You know, but it still has the power that, you know, kind of the modern productions at the time were having, you know, Mm. because that was the thing is it just did it just like the power of of millennium, you know, like it kind of, you know, it doesn't like just because it's so natural, it doesn't really like kick you in the face like I would personally
1: like, you know. Oh, really? Okay, um, yeah. But, uh, I think the production's great for the reason that it works really well when you're listening to it in the car. It's one of the few death metal albums But it's that more I'm, of,
0: you know, for the organic people, you know what I mean? The guys that like the organic style, you know, they love that one, of course, because it is, you know, more organic. But, you know, to me, and Dark Purity kind of brings it back where it's more in the middle of those two out the first two, you know? And it was yeah. kind of like in Dark Purity's first album where I really felt great about the production...
1: Oh really? Okay, yeah. What's the what's yeah, the because we're album? just struggling, do you know what Sorry about you go yeah. What's that. Oh, I was just asking which. Uh, I, I think I think the most recent album, and we'll talk about this in the sec. The passenger passage of existence. I think this is your best album. I've got to say, but aside from that one, um, you had uh, how many albums? have you had out five albums under the Monstrosity banner, which is the one that has sold the most? Or I or, mean, or, it's probably hard to get a lot of that data. But which is the one that you yeah, feel Yeah,
0: one. It's hard to say because it's just you know, it was like, for, for example, in Dark Purity, there was like sixteen or seventeen different versions when you count like the Polish edition and uh, the, yeah, mm. there was like a because that version there was uh, like Metal Age released it, then um, they did like they did kind of like a primitive version, I call it because they. They actually rushed it and like released it before they even knew what the song titles were actually called. And so like there's like hymns of tragedy became hymns, suffering to the conquered became suffering. There was a song called Pillars of Drear that didn't even have a title at the time. It was like on the test on the test mix. It was called Slow Gimmick. So they just took that and called that. You know, they called it Slow Gimmick. So oh God, okay, like, yeah. You know, which we didn't even have a song, you know, it was called Pillars of Drear in the end, but uh, at the time, you know, they used like a, like we didn't even give them the actual art, they just had a laser print of the cover, so they, they made the whole thing off that, and oh, that awesome. was a whole other issue. So there was that version, then they tried to make it up, by released like a, a shape disc version and with like a saw blade shape, whatever, and so there's that version. And then Hammerheart did a uh, digipack version, they did the vinyl, blah, blah, blah. So it's, you know, as far as actual numbers, who really knows, you know, it's, hmm. uh, it's, hard to, it's really hard to say. i to say it. Yeah, well, i think you know uh, obviously nu- nuclear blast had a bigger uh distribution thing going on in the beginning and you know according to them we had sold like thirty six thousand originally and like who knows uh, you know uh probably you know that's
1: not bad in yeah. the
0: end i don't know what the what the final numbers were but uh so like you know i'm gonna guess the first album and maybe the you know the metal blade stuff just since they have a big distribution chain but Uh, We did okay, you know, considering um, for a long time we really didn't have, uh, you know, a lot of help. Um, It was kind of, you know, kind of us on our own with Conquest Music, and, you know, things went good with that, but, uh, you know, we just kind of ran into brick walls as far as the distribution, Uh, you know, a lot of money going out and not much coming in kind of thing, Yeah, yeah. So have you... uh, We've always kept we've always kept it going and you know uh, the deal with Metal Blade we had you know we we did Conquest Music in America and then it was Metal Blade Europe for Rise to Power uh, that album did okay Spiritual Apocalypse to me is a better album um, that was kind of you know we really like at the time you know we really loved the production you know we, the new albums kind of dominated it even more but um you know, we're happy with Spiritual and the new album, for that matter. But we put a lot of work into it, too. We were running two rooms at the same time for Spiritual. We had the A room. Yep. We were doing bass in. And the B room, we were doing leads and vocals. So, like, it was kind of crazy because we had a tour coming up. So that was the first time that we kinda, we had done that, you know, where we were actually operating in two rooms at the same time um which was a little crazy but you know in the end the product was killer you know we were real happy with it at the time Hmm. um and the songs are great and again you know with uh it was metal blade europe and conquest music in america and then for the new album when we finally delivered it they were you know they were we were going to do the same thing conquest in the u.s and but they offered to, to take it for uh worldwide and uh just to kind of see if you know maybe it would go a little better you know since they would maybe put a little more into it since they had a little more invested into it you know we we went ahead and decided to go that route for this album hmm. and uh now we're pretty much free agents we can uh um, do what we want for the next album and uh, we'll see what Metal Blade thinks and uh, we got a few other offers going too so like cool um, you know and I I got half the next album already written Uh, we got I have four songs demoed and Mark has a song called Locust and uh, I have The Skeleton for two more where I where basically I have the drum tracks but the riffs aren't actually written. They're just kind of like I can hear them when, like, I listen to the drum tracks. I can hear in my head what I, you know, what, the, what I'm trying to go for. You know what I mean? But I don't have the physical riffs yet. You know. Mm-hmm. And what happens then too is I'll, you know, I'll come up with my version of it. You know, and then I'll send them off to one of the guitar players and they'll usually take it and, and take it up a few notches technicality-wise, you know. kind That's how like Eyes Upon the Abyss from the new album was. It was a case of where, like I had to like if you hear the demo of it, you would hear the, you can hear the main theme, but it just doesn't have all the intricacies of all the, the riffing that's going on. So like Matt Barnes, for example, took care of that and he just, you know, kind of whipped it up into like, you know, a couple notches higher than it was. Mm-hmm. Whereas a song like Procellarides was kind of kept the way I wrote it, you know, they added their leads to it, but for the most part, the riffs are all the same. Mm, yeah, well, you got Slaves to the Evermore Slaves to the Evermore, similar like that too, and then uh, Eternal Void is kind of one where it was taken and like you know notched up a few notches. So, like, I'm sure that'll happen with some of these new songs too, you know, that I have. Mm. But uh, so I would say roughly call it five to seven songs, depending on how you want to count it. Like um, we still have lyrics to write and all that, so they're not totally complete. But I have ideas for that too. So great. Okay. I don't think it's going to take eleven. The idea is not for
1: it not to take eleven years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, these things. uh, We're not tool. (laughs) At the end of the day, exactly. For then, fourteen years or whatever. Yeah, we always.
0: We've always taken like four years was kind of the average. And that was just because, you know, I figured two years to promote the record, you know, at least, and then probably another year to write it, and yeah. the next record, and then another year to record it all and get it ready with art. This time there was just so many, you know, issues like, with you know, we took forever. Like like you said, we we actually started writing the record in 2011. So like there was a few years already gone. Um, I decided to take the band off the road so we wouldn't be like out there trying to like do both at the same time, which I don't know if that was good or bad. It's hard to say at this point, but the idea was that we would come back and time, time the tour with the record more. And, uh, unfortunately that didn't work out either, but that's a different story. Um, but, uh, you know, so twenty fifteen is when I actually did the drum tracks uh Mark took uh, took his time doing the guitar, so it was like you know a lot of time spent on that and then when it came to the the mixing of it, we weren't ready for his first date, so like he ended up pushing us back till like from like October till April, so that like it that was like a whole nother You know, it wasn't his fault, the guy that mixed it, Mark Lewis, but, you know, it's just the reality of, you know, trying to work this way where it's kind of, you know, actually where we send, you know, uh, I'm used to sitting on the couch and being in front of, you know, the speakers and hearing every EQ tweak and every little drum edit and every little reverb and you know what i mean whereas this way it was kind of sent to us through the internet and it was like okay from here make your changes which is a great idea because you know i can hear it on my speakers if i'm used to hearing it on it's not like that's that was the problem with the first album was it, you know we it sounded great and more sound then when you put it on cassette you know and, and go and listen to it on another um another system and all of a sudden it doesn't sound the same you know because your ears are used to hearing it you know what I mean it's just different, I don't know how it you know it just is, so like we got into more sound, and you know we it sounds great, but like I said, it just didn't have that punch so with this new album, you know mixing I call it mixing through the internet, but you know it's basically he would send me an m p three and yeah. then or whatever of you know wave file of the of the track and you know make your adjustments from there, okay well, for this it like you know, those guys are pros, they know where we're going with it, so like it was really almost done. The only thing that we really tweaked with was like the bass level, you know, uh, yep. so, and it was actually louder than what it is on the album. Uh, oh, we really? just kind of got yeah. fine-tuned it a little more, yeah, we fine-tuned it a little bit, and you can hear the bass as it is, so like, you know, uh, we're real happy with it, you know, it's kind of like a new dimension to our music, you know, when when I actually started playing bass with a cover band, I kind of like, I learned a lot more about bass than I knew before, you know, so um, I do give bass players props, you know, for, you know, it takes, you know, it's hard on your fingers, really hard, and just trying to write more with the drums and like keep it, it's the same key, but it's not what the unison guitar parts. Yeah, I can be saying, yeah, kinda like a lot of a lot of the previous albums kinda had that where it was just following the guitar all the time, you know, or just like every once in a while there'd be like some bass part that would stand out, but otherwise you're just unison and everything. So like with this album like the goal was to, you know, have unique bass parts. Um, and kinda like because that was the argument, you know, if you're just gonna play the unison guitar parts then all you're doing is adding mud by turning the bass up, where exactly. if you actually have something that's different and that complements it, you can still have it in the mix, and you can still hear it, and there's there's good tone, um, you know what I mean? So it's uh, it's, it's a way player. for the bass player
1: to shine. I'm a, I'm a bass player, and I know exactly what you're saying. Okay, I mean, there you go. The thing about, the thing about bass is, is is that I don't, I've, I did a little bit of session work over the years, but I'll never ever forget, and this hopefully this will make you laugh because I remember years ago I did a session about 15 years ago. Remember that singer James Blunt? He's from the UK, and he had that "Your Beautiful" song out. Remember that one? Oh, I can't say I do, I think i it's, it's a oh, very, it's okay, a very soppy, it's a very soppy song. But my point about the song is the bass is non-existent in it. I mean, you really can't hear it unless you have got headphones on and you're really focusing on it. It's really there just to fill out the sound. But I'll never ever forget that I did my bass lines to this this session that I was at, and it was it was a fairly creative bass lines. Exactly what you're saying, you know, following where you need to, but at times I was riffing a little bit and I was putting some extra things in there, what I call salt and pepper, or I can't remember what Larry Graham used to call it, but he used to have a name for it. Okay, so you you support. The, the the riff there's no doubt or you support what's going on in the music but then when there's an opportunity as a bassist you branch out and you let yourself be heard and I'll never forget I did the session and then was driving back from the session with the guy whose uh, whose band it was or whose project it was and he put on James Blunt and he said to me man this is actually what I want you to play bass like and I said mate there is no bass in it it's not there <laughs> and he goes, yeah, but this is, this is it. This is what I want you to do. And I'm like, well, I just won't turn up. I just won't turn up then, and then you'll have your bass. You'll have your bass line, then you can just do whatever the hell you want, really. And I didn't say that in a cynical way. I just said you, it's, it's like bass guitar, not just in death metal, but in almost all genres of music when you don't have someone who has an appreciation for it like yourself, gets marginalised completely. And from my perspective, and I'm sure this is the case even for a lot of non-bass players, who, who people who are musicians who have an appreciation for the musical side of things, when you can't hear the bass properly... I think those albums, they don't stand the test of time overall, particularly metal albums. And uh, I, I noticed it on The Passage of Existence. I truly did. And that's an album that I owned in two formats. So um, did you did you get one of the cassette versions from Greece? Did you end up getting one of the cassette versions? Yeah, of, I yeah. did, actually. Yeah, I, I did. And yeah, it sounds cool. killer over cassette. And you can hear the bass over cassette really well. So there's... Uh, it's it's an album, if you like, that works really well uh, using a reel, so on tape, of course. But uh, I'm just so glad to hear that you're you're a musician that I respect enormously, and you've you've figured out that the bass is an instrument that is worth hearing.
0: Right? Yeah, that was another thing is that um, kind of like in our you know. I'll call it through the nineties through, you know, even the two thousands at some point, you know, we were always like the bass player would, you know, for the 16th note, he'd be trying to play so fast to keep up with that, you know? And like, whereas I learned, you know, yeah, it's a little less flashy looking maybe or whatever, but you're going to hear the note if you just do the eighth notes, you know, and let the, let the rhythm of the drums like carry the 16th note, you know? And, uh, because I you know at some point we, we jammed with this guy uh, and he could do the sixteenth notes at the tempo we wanted you know what I mean and it just like what we noticed is that it actually sounds like a generator going off you know it's like it's like yeah. a clicking more you know so like what you like in our head that's what we wanted like as you know kids or whatever i won't say kids but you know what i mean like in our head mm-hmm. we wanted a guy that could play super fast. you know that was so impressive blah 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 but then when you actually get what you want maybe you don't want it You know yeah. <laughs> so like I'm it was kind of like more like it was kind of like you know like what would happen with that is like you know you'd have you know parts where like the bass is playing and he's like maybe not doing the 16th notes and you got tone and then all of a sudden the fast parts come in and he's going for that 16th and the tone just disappears you know Mm -hmm. So that's what I noticed, like, so that's why I kind of, like, with Passage of Existence, we kind of, like, toned, like, even spiritual, but just kind of, kind of a time reason, more on spiritual, we just kind of dumbed down the bass parts, you know what I mean, and, like, made them, you know, eighth notes, and just, like, like, let the drums create the 16th note feel more, and then uh, with the new album especially, you know, it was, like, each part is, like, definite so that like, you know, that way the tone's there, you know, because to me there's nothing worse than, you know, all of a sudden you got bass and then all of a sudden the tone just disappears as soon as it goes into a fast part, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So well, that's that's our thinking with that, you know, and just you know, if you if you can write bass bass parts that are, you know, that kind of like stand on their own then you can actually
1: turn them up a little bit too. Agreed. You know, yeah, right. yeah, agree on that point there. That's why, I mean, everybody knows Steve DiGiorgio and we mentioned already exactly. Roger, Roger Patterson. I mean, these are guys that really, and really knew how to make the bass stand out but never detract from the song. I think probably one of the greatest metal performances on album, uh, a bass playing metal performances on album would have to be the control denied performance by steve uh giorgio the fragile art of existence okay well i'll
0: go one further and say "Death, human because like there was that whole like i don't know if you've heard the drums and bass mix but no, not yet. there was like a whole yeah, yeah like check it out because they actually put some songs on like the re-release or whatever just the drums and the bass and it's like when the first mix came out you know the bass was basically buried and you know. So like yeah, you know you know, okay, yeah, it's deaf human but blah, but at some point like we had you know, we had the cassettes earlier, but like when they re- you know, released the drums and bass version, you know, it's like a whole nother like it's like I call it like an a sea, you know, underwater you know, a whole nother universe underwater, basically, because there's like just, there's all these sick bass riffs that are going on with the drums that you just totally missed because they were buried, you know?
1: Yeah.
0: And, uh, I, can imagine. I yeah. strongly, you know, I strongly advise you to check that one out because it's like, it's, it's those songs, but in a way you've never heard before, you know? Yeah.
1: And, uh, yeah, no, I definitely. It's really agree. great stuff. Yeah. You know? yeah, so that must be on the physical copy. Is it the CD version? Maybe oh, I don't know.
0: Uh, I think it's on YouTube. I don't know. Here, let
1: me look right now. I think they're on YouTube. Uh, Death, Human, Bass Tracks. It had to be on YouTube, wouldn't it, these days? God, everything ends up going up there, doesn't it? I actually. Yeah, um, they're up
0: there. Suicide Machine and uh, Together is One. You'll, love, emotions.
1: you'll appreciate yeah this. so
0: check those out and you'll hear what I'm saying where it's like, just like a, it's like a whole other universe that's going on that you never even knew like if you're just used to hearing the album mm-hmm. you know it's cool to just throw those tracks on and hear like hear what he was doing because it was great stuff
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's a. Uh, Love
0: Steve to draw the It's great.
1: You know? Oh, he's a, he's a one, wonderful musician, very underrated, I think. And uh, of course, that all comes down to the fact that he plays bass and people don't have a broader uh, or as much of an appreciation for the bass guitar as they do the guitar. But, but, yeah. Never mind the fretless business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how he does that. Yeah. I mean, he's. He, yeah. It, it takes talent to, you know, have
0: your you got to have your ear in order there. You know, otherwise, hmm. uh, you know, it just doesn't match up with the guitar right. You know, it can sound odd. You know, you can sound like you're playing out of tune.
1: Yeah, yeah. Hey, did your um did yours and Chuck's paths ever cross? Because I mean, you're you're an extremely talented musician, mate, and I think he could have used you from working with you from time to time. So was there an, ever an opportunity that you and him uh, could have joined forces back in the day?
0: Ah, uh, we never never he was kind of going with his thing and um i met him they played the cameo theater in miami when he was with terry and bill and uh rick rick and i met him then and we would go we would drive up to tampa and like death and morbid angel were playing we'd you know we'd hang out with him then go to the store and get you know big gulp you know and get a candy bar or whatever and go back to the venue and hang out some more and like, they play or whatever. And then uh, that happened numerous times. And then when they were doing the Death Human rehearsals, I guess, you know, I was actually doing a, I had done kind of like a, where I wrote all the music kind of thing. It was called Witch Doctor. And I had uh, Sean Reiner, the drummer for Cynic, Death, whatever you want to call it. Uh, he actually sang kind of like in the obituary style. And so he did some, he was doing some vocals for me. And like I borrowed their keyboard and, and did a, a intro for it. And you could actually hear Chuck talking in the background and stuff. It's on the tape though, So it's kind of cool. cool but, um, and then uh, when they were doing um, spiritual, well, actually, they were doing spiritual, human, and uh, individual, I was in the studio like at least for one or two sessions, you know, not necessarily in the room like doing anything, but you know, I was hanging out in the lobby and we, they'd come out and we'd hang out and talk, and or I'd go in and listen to a song after they were kind of done with it, you know, we'd hang out and talk some more. Like, uh, I remember distinctly on the individual thought patterns when, when Andy LaRoque was there. hmm. And nice. hang, hanging with Andy and Chuck and Jim Morris, and listening to whatever they they were working on at the time. Sweet, yeah, that's so, cool. <laughs> and then the last time I saw him was at a Kiss convention in Orlando. I ran into him there, and we had a quick little chat. And uh, one long after that, that he announced that he was sick, and um, you know that. Hmm. Yeah, we lost the giant. Yeah, that was horrible. Yeah, he's a great guy, and uh, he was kind of misunderstood a little bit. But I think, you know, I think with time and, like, uh, you know, the internet era, I think maybe, you know, he might have been understood a little better, you know. Because people could have gotten them to know him maybe a little better. You know, because back then we, there were people who were like, you know, going what they read off in fanzines or like, you know, Metal Hammer magazine or Rock Hard magazine. You know, they really didn't, there really wasn't an avenue to like get to know somebody. You know, a quick little 10, you know, like a little 30 second clip on MTV. You know, yeah, he's talking, but you don't really get a vibe for what he's really like, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I think with maybe with the internet or maybe with like, you know, more communicative ways of, uh, you know, understanding the guy, you know, I think people would have, you know, get a different impression of him because like the movie or whatever they did, it kind of made him seem like, you know, yeah, he I'll just quit down. every tour you yeah. know, and it's just not, you know. Uh, I don't think he was that bad. Yeah. And uh, he was controversial, you know. He had his opinions about how he wanted to do things, that's for sure. And he, there were certain bands he didn't like and certain bands he did. And just kind of, he was just like anybody, you know. Everybody has their opinions, so. Mm. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah, he was a super cool guy, you know. I love chugging.
1: He was great. Yeah. I had a, I had a chat. I was so grateful to Ralph. Ralph Santola. I had a couple of conversations with him uh, in the twelve months before he passed away, which I, I was honestly, it was one of those moments. It felt to me like Jim Morrison. You know, you know, people talk about when the Doors ended when Jim Morrison passed right. away. That was like that for me when Ralph passed away, and I was friends with him on Facebook. and I just thought he was a real, a real sweetheart. You know, and we had a good conversation about his work with Chuck. and One of the things he said was. <laughs> I wish I had an appreciation for what I was doing and what I was working, who I was working with at the time. I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but he really recognised. Right. I think when he when he was touring, what was the album that he did? The uh, wasn't symbolic, was it? Um, uh, oh God, I can't remember now. Sorry, it's escaped me. But uh, he's it talking, was individuals the one he toured off of. That's right. Yeah, you it was, know, because yeah. he was, uh, Andy LaRocca did the actual
0: solos on that one.
1: Yeah, there's a so really he did the live. Yeah, have you heard the live stuff that was released at the with the re-releases, uh, where it has Ralph on recording. Have you heard his soloing on that one? No. That's, I it's epic. It's fantastic. You know, it's uh I, oh. I really I really feel like uh this might be controversial to some people, but I really feel like as if he didn't join Dearside Side when he did, I th- I think they were cactus. You know, with uh the Hoffman brothers leaving, they really needed a a solid shredder to come in and really up the game because that, that album, The Stench of Redemption, I think is one of the greatest death metal albums ever and it really does come down to Ralph's playing. So he's he's a guy, I think, that is uh, overlooked by a lot of heavy metal fans. Um, but I think for those people that know him, those people who've worked with him, he's a bit like you, mate, if you don't mind me saying. He's, a, he's an all-rounder and he's someone who could slot into a lot of different bands. And I'm just so grateful that I had the chance to chat to him before he uh, he, he went on, you know, he passed away and and... His his contribution, if you like, like yours again is so overlooked, man. And uh you know, he's uh, you've got a you work with a guy who is now in your side. Or actually uh, he's not, he just left, hasn't he? So Mark English. Yeah, he's not in your side anymore actually. Um he was. His performance on That's that was true. good. The uh, the fellow that with Kevin. Yeah. How do you sp- How do you pronounce his surname? Is it Kirion or Quirion? Kevin
0: Quirion. Or, yeah.
1: Um, well, Kirion, Kevin. Something like that. Yeah. Kevin, and no disrespect to him at all, but he was underqualified for that gig. Okay, and I don't even think it was probably his fault. Glenn is famously very difficult to work with. Even I've spoken to people that have got first-hand experience working with him that way, uh, not not as musicians, but in a business sense. Um, he's very hard to work with. And I think f- to put Kevin in that position, because there's that bloody awful YouTube video out there of a performance. I think they are in Europe where Kevin just, he, he's not, he can't get the solo right. It's like watching a bad, uh, rehearsal tape to be quite honest with you, but they're in front of a couple of thousand people. And I really felt for him. I really felt for him, but well, I think,
0: uh, in his defense and, you know, uh, sometimes those videos don't, you know, they, they tear you up. Like when you're hearing it in the room, hmm. You're hearing it at one level, and then all of a sudden they're turning it up on the video, or there's something with the sound. Like I had that happen with the Terrorizer. There's like a video where it just, you know, it sounds horrible, but like in the room it sounded fine. You know?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. One of those things.
0: Sometimes, sometimes that'll that'll get you. You know, so I I wouldn't totally write Kevin off. I think he's a good player, Uh, but you know, he's you know definitely not the lead player that maybe Mark English is or. you know, Ralph was. You know, I think he'd tell you that. I don't. I don't think he tries to be anything that he's not. No. You know, but uh, I think he's. You know, he's been solid for that band. He's been a good member. And you know, yeah, he kind of. Uh, you know, I know he gets a lot of crap from here and there. You know. Oh I don't, I don't like a a yeah, I don't disagree with you for a moment.
1: Yeah, I think it was more that that he was put into a position to perform songs that that. He he not in his wheelhouse, if you know what I'm saying. And that's, that's that was my point about it. I think he's a wonderful rhythm player, by the way. I wouldn't take anything away from him as a guitarist. But I, I did review um, Overtures of Blasphemy. I think that's the name of the album from last year, from Side, And you can really tell Mark's playing on that one and the influence that it had on it. Because I, right. I think they came. I think the passage of existence and that album came out at about the same time, and I think I might have got the passage of existence beforehand via E Split PR. You know, Liz and Mark, uh, they sent it over, and um, I remember listening to that. And I had that, and of course, because I'm a Big, big monstrosity fan i listen to that a lot and then when the Deer Side album came out i'm like oh i can hear this i can hear mark's songwriting influence and if it's not necessarily songwriting influence it's his uh the timbre of his playing is very similar uh which is and it's right. a shame it's a shame that he's not in Deer Side, i think because i know that they've got another guitarist who's a bit of a when i say not entity i don't think anybody's really heard of him but uh There was, there's a live video, there's two live videos out there on YouTube, anybody can find these, but there's one that features Mark and there's one that features the current guy, and I've got to tell you, Mark's playing is better. Um, Not being critical, I'm just, you know... I'm a fan and you notice these sorts of things but uh, it's a shame that I think he's not in the band because of that bloody revolving door of guitarists that Glenn's got in place in that band at the moment I don't think it's going to augur go well for them long term um, You need you need that consistency I think on recording I know that Steve does a lot of the songwriting but if you don't have that consistency on recording, you can make for some very patchy albums. And I think, unfortunately, with the great exception of the wonderful albums that Ralph recorded on, that's what Deerside's career... That's the first thing that comes to mind when I think of Deerside's career. It's very patchy. But I'll I'll make my point here, mate, which is that Mark English, is is he still in monstrosity, so to speak? Like, if there was an opportunity for you guys to tour and do what you need to do and bring the music to the people, would he be a part of that package?
0: Yeah, I mean, he just did the tour we just got off of. So, yeah, yes. um, yeah. yeah, um, we'd kind of like you know planned on him not doing stuff. Um, that's kind of how um, we ended up bringing in because I play in a side project with the Tardy Brothers, John and Don. Nice. They have a project called Tardy. It's actually called Tardy Brothers, mm-hmm. and uh, the guitar player who does all like. I guess, you know, Ralph played the leads on the album. So the guy who's playing the Ralph leads on the, on the live shows or whatever, his name's Justin Walker. And we just used him for monstrosity on this tour that we just did. And it's kind of complicated, but like my, you know, Mark English was going to be off with the So we, that's kind of how I started talking to Justin about doing show, you know, doing shows and stuff like that. And so we actually used Mark English and Justin Walker for this last tour. Um, mm. And, uh, so Mark's, you know, Mark's still jamming with us and, uh,
1: cool.
0: yeah, yeah, um, it's cool. And then, uh, as far as DSI, you know, he was trying to do both, you know, he was kind of doing what he could do. And, um, as far as doing both gigs, so, you know, it was, it was cool. It was kind of, it was kind of interesting, you know, I could, um, hearing, you know, DSI stories and hearing kind of what was going on with those guys, you know, I was like, you know, and they're... The way they approach things, and uh, you know that—that's one cool thing about you know this whole thing is that we learn learn new techniques, learn new tricks, and mm. kind of see where other people are at. You know, mm-hmm. jamming with obituary. I played drums with them over the summer. Nice, um, a couple <laughs> shows.
1: Oh, is that right? And, there uh, you go. Yeah, yeah. I did. Uh,
0: I did like five shows in Europe, and I did like another five or six in the U.S. Uh, just to fill in, you know, because their drummer had some issues going on at home, and he had to take care of. And uh, that's nice, that's you know. Sweet. So getting to see how their camp works, and you know, it just it's it's good for me, you know. What I mean, I can learn techniques that I can bring back to my band, and without ripping them off. But you know what I mean? Just like little things, little things you learn. You
1: know yeah I do yeah I know exactly what you're saying, yeah but well, that's that's a that's a really it's a really positive statement you make there because you never do stop learning, do you and for someone like never, you, well every well for someone like so, certainly my feelings about you mate is that you you've you as i've already mentioned, you're so accomplished, but it's um it really does come back down to uh refining your craft and being able to uh to find different ways of doing things and improving those ways of doing things. And the only way you do that is by doing things with other people. A lot of the time, that's the school, that's the university, isn't it? When it comes to music, if I've, I've often said that to people, you know, you've got to play with as many different people as possible, but you're playing it, you're performing at a very high level. Let's, let's face it, you are performing at an extremely high level. The quality of all of your work has, has always been magnificent. And, and to hear that you, I didn't know that, that you performed with uh, obituary that's that's quite something yeah that's... I actually played
0: guitar with him in 2012 I did a South American tour as second guitarist so I so I've actually been guitar player and drummer in obituary which is a feat that no one can claim yeah. no that's great man that's <laughs> great I like, you know, yeah. Yeah. those guys are great I love them so it's always fun playing with them Mm.
1: So you got, so let's talk about Terrorizer for a bit because Caustic Attack, another epic album, both of those albums, uh, meaning uh, the Monstrosity album, Passage of Existence and uh, the Terrorizer album, Caustic Attack, were in my top 10 for last year. And uh, it was so unusual to see, I I didn't know that you played guitar as well. I mean, I I, I knew you was a drummer, of course, but uh, to see you in some of the videos and to see you in the... um, the the promotional material as the guitarist for Terrorize. I was thinking, what's what's this guy going to do next? Is it Bruce Dickinson style flying planes or something? <laughs> I mean, it was just it was it was well, great to see. Actually,
0: yeah uh, As a matter of fact, I am learning to fly.
1: So, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> mate, there's nothing Seriously. you can't do. Yeah. yeah, there's nothing you can't do. But I, I love that album because it's just so in your face. And I, I do a lot of swimming, and I swim to that album too. It was one of the albums that I first got into uh, when I bought these Finnis, uh headphones, which you can use underwater. And I put it on there, and it's a great album to swim to. It's just got the right beat for everything. But uh, did you did you write Hello. a lot? Of, did you write a lot of the material on Caustic Attack? I wrote all the guitar riffs. Nice, that's, and, that's another album of yours then, yeah, there you go. The answer,
0: yeah, pretty much is uh, Sam wrote the, like, he came up with the words and some of the patterns, and then uh, I, I kind of like, you know, more or less fit the patterns in with the music, hmm. um, but yeah, the guitarists are all mine, and like at first, Pete, you know, kind of like, I'd have to, like, you know, we'd, we'd. I'd show him some riffs or whatever and he'd, he'd kind of pick them apart or whatever. And then like, eventually, you know, we got to a point where he trusted what I was doing and I could, you know, just come in pretty much with a whole song and say, here, here it is, you know? And so then like towards, like, that's why we ended up with so many songs Um, and there's actually some more songs too. So there's like five more that we got. Um But Hmm. basically it was just you know we got to a point where you know where he felt comfortable with me you know what we were the way we were the direction we were headed so it was kind of you know free for me, freeing for me because i could write you know and then just you know kind of get on with it you know and we were able to just come up with more songs a lot quicker you know and um you know he basically you know i was a fan of world downfall and the second album and the third album, they're good, but they're just, to me, they're like a little, they're kind of like, you know, they're down tuned and they're not, uh, Let's I don't know, they're kind of over-triggered in the production aspect. Mm-hmm. And so for me personally, I wanted to kind of take it back to the old school uh, way that World Downfall was, a little more organic in the drumming. And so that's why we, you know, I kind of because I'd spent so much time on passage of existence. Like we spent like two or three days getting drum toned You know, I'd never done that before. It was always like six hours of more sound would be like a maximum. You mm-hmm. know, yeah. just because time is money and blah blah blah. With Jason, the way we worked the deal was like a little more relaxed. You know, and we had time to do that with the tones and doing all that. So. I kind of wanted to get Pete on board with that way of thinking, you know, and so, like, I brought him out to Audio Hammer where we recorded and showed him kind of, like, we watched some other band, artifacts they were doing some drums. Oh, yeah, good band. We, yeah. Watched them. we watched them recording a little bit, and then, uh, you know, Pete got to see that. He was hearing mine, you know, I was working on the mixes for Passage, and he was hearing that, so, like, and, you know, I just got him. kind of got him into the idea of recording more natural drum sound, you know, like, if it can sound like it's triggered, but it's still natural, isn't that you know? Isn't that the kind of goal you're going with? You know, what I mean, the idea of triggering is to get good sound without you know, it in an easier yeah, way. consistent sound. exactly. So, yeah. This, this way, you know, it's 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 a little harder work. You know, a lot more work because a lot you have to have a lot of patience. You know, because you know, you get warmed up, and then all of a sudden you're not ready to you know because the like toms you know not sounding right, or now we got to tweak this, we got to do something. You know what I mean? It just ruins the vibe. But, you know, it's kind of like one of those things where, you know, just deal with it, put up with it, get through it, you know, and in the end we'll have a masterpiece, you know, and that was kind of, so it took a while to get everybody, you know, get Pete on board with that and, you know, show that you know, to trust, you know, because for him it would be easier to just go down the street, you know, and record his drums, you know, somewhere in Tampa, you know, versus going to Orlando or Sanford, which is actually there's that. Um, we had the killer drum room, if you've seen the video. Uh, I have, that's an awesome the video. School. Yeah, yeah. There's like a killer drum room, you know, it's like a log cabin this old guy built, you know, it was where we did the drums. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, cool drum room, you know, and so, um, pretty much, you know, the, it's uh, pretty happy with the way everything turned out with that, you know. It was a lot of work, but uh, the end result speaks for itself, you know. It does. Yeah,
1: both albums. Yeah. what I what I like too is the uh, that video that you did. I think it was in Germany where yourself and Pete were talking about drumming, and uh, it's a black and oh, white. Right. Yeah, I don't know why they talk. shot it. Yeah, yeah, drum talk. I don't know why they filmed it in black and white or sepia tone, but they did that. But apart from that, the uh, the conversation that you both have and and the philosophy, the sharing of your philosophy around drums. I think that's essential listening, actual watching in this case here. Um, it's it's one of those things that it it helped make a lot of sense of the album. Now I'm going to draw a bit of a naff comparison again, like I did before with Weezer. But remember when Metallica did that, uh, you know, the bloody awful album, *In Anger*, but then they released that accompanying video of them performing it. And sure, I think
0: you're going to say the same thing I said just the other day.
1: Keep going. No, it, it was it reminded me of that in that it if if you hadn't. If they hadn't released that video, I would have chucked that. I mean, I, to be honest, I have thrown the album in the bin, but it, certainly at the time it, it it forced me to sort of pay a bit more attention to the album rather than just not listening to it at all. But th- that's not what I'm saying, so definitely what I'm saying about Caustic Attack, which I think is an extraordinary album, but it just gave it that, that, that fourth dimension, if you like. Watching you guys perform it live and also getting – your uh your your thoughts and the sharing of your philosophy you like philosophy if you like on the album and uh it's something that i've I've, it's probably one of my most watched youtube videos actually that one there because it's uh there's so much goodness in that there's so much goodness in that and the way that it was edited i think the editing is a pretty good job too because it just focused on you guys talking and the guy basically seemed to to get out of your way and it probably wasn't like that when you were being interviewed of course we know these things go but I felt like you guys were able to really explain your thoughts on things without too much interference. And it really helped me understand caustic yeah. attack.
0: There was actually a lot more that he ended up cutting just because my mic was messing up. Um, All right. Yeah. But you know, it was really, yeah, it's a good one. Definitely. Uh, you know, it's, it's cool too, because it's me and Pete and it's not just one dimension of either one of us, you know, you kind of get that back and forth and, uh, yeah, There was another one too from uh, I think where was it Um, Austria Vienna. This Stormbringer I think it's called where we kind of like I'm at you know I almost become I almost become the interviewer you know what I mean because I'm like curious (laughs) about questions from Pete you know. you know, because I'm a fan too, you know, I like that world downfall. Like, that, that's a great, you know, that was one of the first records to do those kind of blast beats where they're in time and yeah, yeah. you can hear the
1: snare. In you know, time, you is so there. true. Yeah. Yeah. I know, I think that's what people sort of miss with some of the early Napalm Death stuff is that, yeah, sure, it's seminal stuff, but. It's not exactly musical, meaning that the musicians hadn't quite got the command of the instrument that was probably necessary. And then you go to the other side of that with Raymond Herrera and the Fear Factory guys where it's just too triggered and it sounds too artificial. And my opinion on that's why I, I know... Plenty of people that think this way, actually, but that's why I think the Fear Factory stuff hasn't stood the test of time because it sounds too artificial. Whereas if you talk about Millennium, that's why that has stood the test of time uh, because it does sound very organic and it sounds like as it was created by musicians. You know and uh right and oh, sorry, you you're gonna make another point earlier, I want to go back to it, but we're talking about Sinanga <laughs> I just I still can't believe all these years later, I still can't believe they bothered to release it, but uh you're gonna draw a parallel between two points that I was making. Can you remember what that was
0: well um my my thing with that was that you know it was uh having the the video to go with the CD you know it was like That almost sounds better than the record itself, you know, Uh, the D V D part. Mm -hmm. And like I think, you know, I know, you know, particularly with that album, their goal was to like everybody was like involved in the writing. Like if you weren't in the room and didn't use the riff, I don't know if you remember that part of the story, but that was part of their little thing at at the time. So it becomes art by committee, you know, and that to me is you know, can be a bad thing, you know. (laughs) Yeah. So <laughs> that so that rule there, so that rule there kind of like might have messed things up, but like you know, like at least they were going for it. Man. There's a lot of double bass, fast double bass parts, and a lot of skank beats. You know those kind of thrashy beats or whatever you want to call them. Um, so like I think they had good intentions with it, but like you know the hard by committee thing got in the way. And trying you know they were trying to make a garbage you know, like I won't say garbage garage, we'll say garage sounding production you know like where they were trying to keep it raw like the idea was there but it just was you know it just wasn't executed you know in the long run correctly whereas they probably could have re-recorded it in like three days and come up with a better sounding record um and you know maybe just the songs weren't that good like you know and you know if you would have had better songs and um but yeah, the the trash can snare drum doesn't help things for sure in the production. But so, like so, like the song Saint A, yeah. I like I think the song Saint A could be crafted into a good song if they put Agreed. some more work yeah. into it, do a little production on it, maybe clean some parts up here and there. And um, not that I'm you know second guessing Metallica, but you know just uh, uh-huh. that's my opinion. I think you know like because it it was at least thrash metal again, you know.
1: Mm. Well, well, look, they wouldn't—they wouldn't give a shit. But I'm done with the band, to be honest with you. I can't even listen to them anymore. To me, they've—they've they've released so many yeah. shit albums over the last twenty years that I can't even listen to the stuff from the '80s that really got me into heavy metal, *The Master of Puppets* and *Ride the Lightning*. And I don't even care anymore. I just—I just—I get so frustrated listening to Lars's drum sound and the way he drums which just isn't up to par. I've long said that I think he needs a uh, a Chris Adler or a Tim Young to step into the fold. Or you, man, even you. Like, I'm not saying even you, but I know you're busy with other things. But, I mean, I compare, I compare say, your drumming and your level of uh, your, your accomplished drumming to his drumming mate. And you know what he reminds me of, and I've written this online, so it's out there for people to read, but Lars reminds me of the bloke that bought penny stocks and the stock, in like, a, he bought, say, 50 or 60% of the shares in a particular stock like Apple back in like 1979 or 1981 or whenever it was and he just sat back and just watched this stock increase in value without really contributing too much and I know people disagree and they go "Oh, look he does the arrangements and all the rest of it but really that band's all about James because James is just such a fantastic musician great vocalist great rhythm guitar player I just feel like on that like, particularly on that last album Hardwired to Self-Destruct there were some okay Songwriting on that one there, but it was ruined by Lars's overly simplistic, overly simplistic drumming. It's it's like he's regressing, <laughs> but he's doing it on album.
0: Well, you know, probably, probably. What's it? You know, I mean, he's got millions of dollars. He's not worrying about it. You know, he's concentrating yeah. on hanging out somewhere, doing other things. You know, it's a craft. You got to put you got to put time into it. You know, that's that's the biggest secret of the biz is time, investing time into it. You know. Mm. And, like, that's why, you know, maybe the new album's one of our better ones because we had the extra time to really just craft everything and, like, build it up, bring it down, rebuild it again, you know, and like really focus on it. Whereas they're in such a machine, they got to get something out, you know, and he's just not putting it, you know, he's the not time in. I, the I time. I know what you're like, saying, but where's
1: up. the inner critic? So you're somebody who is who is, you're, you're, you're obviously of a high intellect, okay. You've he's listening
0: got... to Muse, and he's listening to you too, and like, he's just not concerned with, he's not listening to the new dark, you know, the new dark funeral, or the new, uh, I get whatever. that. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I, I, I believe me. I, I get that. I think it's just there's not that inner critic for him to sit back. And I saw him in, in Brit. They toured Brisbane here in 2010, and he was shit. Sorry. I mean, it's for somebody. I'm a musician, and I, I'm casting judgment from the perspective that you're paying to watch somebody, and and he's out of time half the time. And and James even said to him, and I kid you not, James even said to him h- halfway through the performance, why I can't. It might have been battery. He stopped at the end of battery and he stared at Lars and he goes, "Well, three of us stopped on time." And and I think it went over the top of people's heads in the audience. And you could, I remember turning in my buddy at the time. I can't remember who I went with now, but I remember, I remember saying, "Well, there you go. <laughs> There's going to be a stern conversation maybe after the gig in the in the uh, green room." with Lars about that one there but for, for James yeah. even to say that I mean you can't kick him out of the band I get that it's practically his band I understand that but you know for a band uh, that has turned into a brand but is a beloved entity Metallica um Fans, I, I just don't, I can't understand their continued success. To yeah, you'd think
0: he did some drum lessons, to be honest. You'd know, you think he'd get Derek Roddy over for the day and have him show oh, him some legs. You know?
1: Yeah, there's a great name, Derek Roddy. Yeah, the, there are so many wonderful drummers out there uh, in heavy metal that could do a job with one hand that he can't even do with two at this point in right. time. And, and I just think, dude, just, You've, to your point earlier, he, he made you millions. You've, you've, you've got it. You know, your world, you, you're successful, you're famous. And I've made this point online as well. I I've, I've do blog entries and shit. And I said, maybe you should just step out and be executive producer and let a Chris Adler step in. You know, somebody, somebody like that who can probably follow instructions and really get the drumming side of things and is available for touring and all of that sort of stuff. And not suggesting that you get a revolving door of musicians, but I'd really love to hear how a band would sound with an accomplished drummer you know and right and i I don't know I don't know how he got through injustice for all I don't know how he did that i I have a feeling a lot of that was patched together though I haven't read anything or
0: yeah'm I think they admit that um but uh it was what it was you know he did it for the time you know I was still like you know I wasn't that good back then when he was doing it so like you know, maybe you know. Hopefully, I progress past that. You know, at this point, so uh, I can see. You know,
1: you definitely progress well past like, that you point. <laughs> you're one of the. You're, you're one of the. You're one of the most accomplished drummers I've ever heard. You know, I mean, it's. Uh, your your drumming is really one of those things where Lars simply couldn't do what you do. He's not even in the same planet really sorry excuse me for coughing but he's not even anywhere near your uh your merit but then you
0: know there's kids that are coming along that are going to be you know they're just like they're so ridiculous these days there's you know what i mean it's kind of a generational thing you know it's like i there's kids that are just so fast and they can play you know the solo from whatever song you know that's totally impossible you know what i mean Mm. so like you'll have like, for us, you know, when we were in high school, snare so was fast, you know what I mean? It's like, they're just not that fast now because there's a million bands that are doing that and doing it better, you know, because mm-hmm. of time, you know, they've had the time to evaluate what was being done and improve upon it. Whereas, like, you know, maybe with Lars, he got to, you know, he was at a certain level, but, you know, we studied it and we... You know what I mean? And we took it to another place, hopefully. You know what I mean? So, like, I'm sure the same thing is happening with death metal. You know, there's kids that are looking at what we're doing and, you know, going to take it to another level. You know? There's that kid mm. in the that's in his rehearsal room right now who you, you, you haven't heard of him yet because he's just in their woodshed and every day practicing to get better to when he can, for his time to shine, you know? And then there's going to be that guy that comes and just blows you away you know that was always our thing is you know like even with malevolent you know we were looking for the unknown shredder you know the guys out there you know some <laughs> some kid some like jason morgan for example on the millennium album that guitar player he's uh like, fantastic yeah. he's from he's from tennessee dude i mean like you know he's he just sits in his room and like learns albums like at the drop of a dime you know he just can, you know at the time you know he was learning you know he like learned images and words like just like in a couple days you know and then he'd play a kiss alive one he'd play it from start to finish you know and even all the little sounds accidents and like he had every little part of it you know what i mean so like there's kids out there that are doing that for our our band you know what i mean you know and it's and back to the cover band thing, it's definitely good to learn covers because those are, you know, you're picking up styles that you just wouldn't have otherwise, you know. Mm. And so, so learning other bands, you know, there's bands out oh, I never play cover songs. I don't want to be influenced by somebody else, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, chances are you can't jam either, you know. Yeah, no exactly. Offense, hey? but... yeah. Oh, no, I agree <laughs> with you. Oh,
1: look, I, I've had people in rehearsal studios say to me, oh, you like, you're whoring yourself out, are you? It's like, fuck off. What do you know? I'm, right. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a working Experience, musician. Man. Yeah, I, I've yeah, I I mean, get the shits with it. I say, I say to, I'm, I'm I mentioned earlier, I'm back at uni these days, and uh, so I'm in my forties, and I'm at uni with all the twenty-year-olds and the late teens, and I'm try, I'm, I've actually hit, I've, I'm on the bond. Bond University music appreciation, well uh, in the group or whatever Facebook group and in the society there on campus, and I've uh, I've actually said to people, look, do you want to start a hard rock covers band? Like I was mentioning earlier, but that's where I'm doing it. I'm doing it at uni, and um, man, you'd be surprised. I've had I've had quite a few people hit me up and go, yeah, I'm interested, but they they haven't quite got the expert like the experience yet to really for it to to sort of bear fruit. So I'm I'm happy to sort of take time with it all but it's really cool to see that people recognise that that's an opportunity worth taking and I, I simply cannot understand snobby attitudes toward being a covers musician because it's how you become a better musician is by performing on stage in front of people. That's how you learn how to react quickly. It's a bit like being a, the Cricket World Cup's on at the moment, you know, cricket a bit like baseball but watching this Cricket World Cup last night as I was doing Australia or playing Bangladesh, I mean, both guys, it, you know, this is not their first series, obviously. These guys have been practicing their batting for probably tens of thousands of hours. And a lot of that right. would be in local competitions here in Australia or, or, where, or playing county cricket and in the UK. They're pl- they're performing in front of people is what I'm saying. And you've got to do that. You can't just stay in the nets and then expect that to translate to being out on the field or up on stage. It doesn't work that way. And that's where covers music is such a great opportunity for people. And apart from that, it's really cool. As you, as you all know, as you play every weekend, seeing people dancing to music that you're producing. And and you can see how happy it makes them,
0: right? Yeah. And yeah, never mind the you know financial benefits, just so that you can work on your real music. You know, mm. so that's one thing that's good for me. You know, it just uh, it frees me up, frees my time up. but I'm not, you know, it's easier to spend three hours at a cover gig on a Friday night and then have the rest of the week to chill. You know. Yeah. No,
1: that's work cool. on my music. Mm. That's cool. Um, mate, i better wrap things up because I've got to go and get the kids' lunches ready. It's almost seven a.m. here, but uh, I got to honestly keep on talking to you, man. It's such a thrill to finally talk to you. I must say, you're a fella. You're one of those guys, and you'll appreciate this when you get a CD and you look at the picture of somebody and you go, "Holy shit, that's what in your case, <laughs> this is what Lee looks like." You know, and then you see you on videos yeah. and stuff, and you really look up to you from afar. Uh, I'm not a drummer, of course, but I'm a guitarist and bass player, as I mentioned, and uh, it's, it's, the, it's the quality of your work, and, and I know it's very meaningful, the quality, and, and you wouldn't believe this, but the person I was interviewing yesterday was Trey Exacto's mother. I had a chat to her. Oh, yeah? Lovely conversation, Janelle, just a lovely, lovely lady, you know, and we went really deep into Trey's performance, and she mentioned something to me that I don't think's out there in the, uh, in the, in the public domain. Um, I better not say it actually because I've got to get her approval but I'll tell you when I sort of finish the podcast episode I'll tell you what she told me that isn't in the public domain but it was really interesting getting the insight from her about how he became the musician that he became and it's the same, same thing for you it's sort of, I love getting to yeah, be able to sort of go backstage in a virtual sense and sort of find out what influence and what inspires a musician so mate I want to thank you so much for giving me your time
0: no problem, So what's the news with Morbid Angel?
1: So she told me that he's got Asperger's. Um, and uh, I was like, keep this to yourself, obviously. He does, or he does? He does. I, I didn't know that, that, that you, that's know. probably old news to you. But, yeah, I mean, please don't share that because I don't – I've got to get her approval to uh, release the podcast episode. But, yeah, she, she told me that, and it made so much sense um, because he doesn't do interviews. And on some of the interviews that he has done, he's very fidgety and – is very uncomfortable but he's got that tunnel vision I think is what she described it as where he's able to um, just focus intently on something and craft it to excellence like he can do because I think he's I think he's a genius to be honest I just love his well,
0: work. Are they touring or what are they going to do?
1: Um, again please keep this to yourself so I'm trusting you with this. Uh, she mentioned that uh, right. they've got an, a US tour coming up in November but that's definitely not public domain so please don't share that. Um okay. yeah, no yeah, she wasn't even sure whether she should share that one with me, yeah. So she said that and uh, um apart from that, I mean I, I don't know, I don't know what's happening with the other guys in the band. I think obviously Steve and Trey will be doing will stay in forces permanently because that seems like the partnership moving forward. But she gave me a lot of insight, let me tell you. She gave there was there's a lot of information there that I was like, Holy shit, I did not know that. And I'm a I'm a big fan, I'm a mega fan, I suppose you'd call me and I thought I knew everything there was to know, but <laughs> apparently not. Um, yeah. Well, there's a new Mike Browning interview out,
0: too, that kind of Well, he's um, tells all more about Angel stories. It's kind of interesting.
1: Well, I, I, he's in Chile at the moment. I just had a, a, a Facebook Messenger conversation with him yesterday, Mike Browning. So he's coming up soon. Oh, cool, man. I'll be talking to him soon. Cool, yeah. man. It's been a really good week, man. Let me tell you, there's yourself, there's Janelle uh, and uh, Mike coming up. So it's been a really good week for interviews, I must say.
0: Excellent, man. Well, I appreciate it, bro. Thanks for all the support, man. And uh, hopefully we will out for you, man.
1: Well, there you have it, ladies and gents. That was a repost of a conversation that occurred back in June 2019 with the great Lee Harrison, Of monstrosity and terrorizer now if you enjoyed that one there are many more just like it over at scarsandguitars.com and if you like listening maybe you like reading too and you're also in luck because i've written a book scars and guitars conversations from the world of hard rock heavy metal and beyond volume one i'm working on volume two as i do this narration check out volume one though by clicking on a link in the banner of the website you'll be taken to a marketplace of your choice and Yeah, if you do decide that you want to download a sample and complete the purchase, hit me up because I want to thank you personally. I've got some more information to share with you about the book in the moment, but before we get to that, I'll bid you a fond farewell. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and I'm the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast. Until next time, it's a very goodbye for now. This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. I've been the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast since 2017. The first musician I interviewed for the show was David Vincent from Morbid Angel, and things have just snowballed from there. In all, I've posted almost 650 podcast episodes featuring conversations with many of the leading lights of rock, heavy metal, and beyond. And beyond. It just got to a point where I thought, I need to write a book about all this, so that's exactly what I did. In Scars and Guitars Volume 1, you'll read a heap of deep reveals and commentary, such as Des Fafara talking about Coal Chamber and why the band will never return.
0: You know, if you're a, a band
1: just starting out, you need to hear me. Do not start a band with partners. Never. Yeah, wise words. there. Uh, sage advice, mate, for anybody. Don't ever, because I I can't go do cold chamber right now unless I get others involved. Phil Anselmo talks about the episode in his career, which gives him the greatest sense of accomplishment. I think the staying power of the the fans and the staying power of the I, of the songs. You know, whether it's Pantera, Down, or Superjoint, the fans remember the songs. Alex Skolnick from Testament confirms it. Yes. Playing the guitar in Ozzy's band is anything but an ordinary gig. Will Silenos from Gear write a book? Pa from Sabaton gives advice to people who want to start a band. Look at the team around you, look at the bandmates. If if the guys want to be on the stage, then it's all cool. If the guys want to be backstage, then it's not going to be cool. Current and former members of Cradle of Filth discuss the band's seminal 90s material. Read about the reaction. To George Lynch and Mark from Suicide Silences comments when they throw shade at then President Donald Trump. We have this idiotic monster, you know, this egotistical,
0: self-aggrandizing, complete piece of shit in there. I, I, I just, I just can't understand how we've gotten to this place.
1: And yeah, we kicked a hornet's nest with sepultura. Percussive Overlord Gene Hoagland talks about recording with Chuck Schuldiner. Chuck was always, um, you know, he was, he was. Very, you know, very open-minded, and and he was into having his his musicians that were playing with him just reach out for for the best stuff that they had. Phil Campbell from Motorhead discusses what it takes to get sober. John Five answers his critics who dismiss his tenure with Marilyn Manson. You know, my name is John Five, and Manson gave me that name, and uh, I. I had some of the best years of my life in that band and, and learned a lot. And we get the lowdown on Trey Exactoth from those who would know, including his mother. All across Scars and Guitars Volume 1, there are moments of tension, relief, tragedy, exhilaration, and throughout it all, you'll obtain insight that I believe no one else has managed to obtain from many of your favorite artists. So treat yourself. Scars and Guitars Volume 1 is currently available. As an ebook with a print edition on the horizon. Follow the links attached and download a sample. I'm sure you'll be compelled to read the whole book.